brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. The Mortification of Sin in Believers by Dr. John Owen Chapter 1 That what I have of direction to contribute to the carrying on of the work of mortification in believers may receive order and perspicuity, I shall lay the foundation of it in those words of the Apostle, Romans 8, 13. If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live and reduce the whole to an improvement of the great evangelical truth and mystery contained in them. The Apostle, having made a recapitulation of his doctrine of justification by faith, and the blessed estate and condition of them who are made by grace partakers thereof, verses 1-3 to of this chapter, proceeds to improve it to the holiness and consolation of believers. Among his arguments and motives unto holiness, the verse mentioned containeth one from the contrary events and effects of holiness and sin. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. What it is to live after the flesh, and what it is to die, that being not my present aim and business, I shall no otherwise explain than as they will fall in with the sense of the latter words of the verse as before proposed. In the words peculiarly designed for the foundation of the ensuing discourse, there is, first, a duty prescribed, mortify the deeds of the body. Secondly, the persons are denoted to whom it is prescribed, ye, if ye mortify. Thirdly, there is in them a promise annexed to that duty, ye shall live. Fourthly, the cause or means of the performance of this duty, the Spirit, if ye through the Spirit. Fifthly, the conditionality of the whole proposition, wherein duty means and promise are contained, if ye, and so on. Number one, the first thing occurring in the words as they lie in the entire proposition is a conditional note, but if. Conditionals in such propositions may denote two things. Number one, the uncertainty of the event or thing promised in respect of them to whom the duty is prescribed. This takes place where the condition is absolutely necessary unto the issue and depends not itself on any determinate cause known to him to whom it is prescribed. So we say, if we live, we will do such a thing. This cannot be the intendment of the conditional expression in this place. Of the persons to whom these words are spoken, it is said, verse 1 of the same chapter, there is no condemnation to them. Number 2, the certainty of the coherence and connection that is between the things spoken of. As we say to a sick man, if you will take such a potion or use such a remedy, you will be well. The thing we solely intend to express is the certainty of the connection that is between the potion or remedy and health. And this is the use of it here. The certain connection, that is, between the mortifying of the deeds of the body and living, is intimated in this conditional particle. Now the connection and coherence of things being manifold, as of cause and effect, of way and means in the end, this between mortification and life is not of cause and effect properly and strictly, 
For eternal life is a gift of God through Jesus Christ, Romans seven twenty three, but of means and end. God hath appointed this means for the attaining that end, which he has freely promised. Means, though necessary, have a fair subordination to an end of free promise. A gift and procuring cause in him to whom it is given are inconsistent. The intendment, then, of this proposition as conditional is that there is a certain infallible connection and coherence between true mortification and eternal life. If you use this means, you shall obtain that end. If you do mortify, you shall live. And herein lies the main motive unto and enforcement of the duty prescribed. Number two, the next thing we meet with all in the words is the persons to whom this duty is prescribed. And that is expressed in the words, ye. That is, ye believers, ye to whom there is no condemnation, verse 1. Ye that are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, verse 9 who are quickened by the Spirit of Christ, verse 10 and 11. To you is this duty prescribed. The pressing of this duty immediately on any other is a notable fruit of that superstition and self-righteousness that the world is full of. The great work and design of devout men, ignorant of the gospel, Romans 10, 3 and 4, John 15, verse 5. Now, this description of the persons in conjunction with the prescription of the duty is the main foundation of the ensuing discourse, as it lies in this thesis or proposition. The choicest believers, who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Number three. The principal efficient cause of the performance of this duty is the Spirit, if by the Spirit. The Spirit here is the Spirit mentioned in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God that dwells in us. Verse 9, that quickens us. Verse 11, the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, the Spirit of Adoption. Verse 15, the Spirit that maketh intercession for us. Verse 26, all other ways of mortification are vain. All helps leave us helpless. It must be done by the Spirit. Men, as the Apostle intimates, Romans 9.30-32, may attempt this work on other principles by means and advantages administered on other accounts as they always have done and do. But, saith he, this is the work of the Spirit. By him alone it is to be wrought, and by no other power is it to be brought about. Mortification from a self-strength, carried on by ways of self-invention, unto the end of a self-righteousness, is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. And this is the second principle of my ensuing discourse. Number four, the duty itself, mortify the deeds of the body, is nextly to be remarked. Three things are here to be inquired into. One, what is meant by the body? Two, what by the deeds of the body? Three, what by mortifying of them? Number one, the body in the close of the verse is the same with the flesh in the beginning. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye mortify the deeds of the body, that is, of the flesh, it is that which the apostle hath all along discourse of under the name of flesh which is evident from the prosecution of the antithesis between the spirit and the flesh before and after. 
The body then here is taken for that corruption and depravity of our natures, whereof the body in a great part is a seat and instrument, the very members of the body being made servants unto unrighteousness thereby. Romans 6 verse 19. It is indwelling sin, the corrupted flesh or lust that is intended. Many reasons might be given of this metonymical expression, that I shall not now insist on. Number two, the deeds of the body. The word which indeed denotes the outward actions chiefly, the works of the flesh, as they are called, Galatians 5.19, which are there said to be manifest and are enumerated. Now, though the outward deeds are here only expressed, yet the inward and next causes are chiefly intended. The axe is to be laid to the root of the tree. The deeds of the flesh are to be mortified in their causes from whence they spring. The apostle calls them deeds as that which every lust tends unto. Though it do but conceive and prove abortive, it aims to bring forth a perfect sin. Having both in the seventh and the beginning of this chapter, treat of, it, of indwelling lust and sin as the fountain and principle of all sinful actions, he here mentions this destruction under the name of the effects which it doth produce. Number three, to mortify. If you put to death a metaphorical expression taken from the putting of any living thing to death, to kill a man or any other living thing, is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power, so that he cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actings of his own. So it is in this case. Indwelling sin is compared to a person, a living person called the old man, with his faculties and properties, his wisdom, craft, subtlety, strength. This, says the apostle, must be killed put to death, mortified, that is, have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit. It is, indeed, meritoriously, and by way of example, utterly mortified and slain by the cross of Christ, and the old man is then said to be crucified with Christ, Romans 6, verse 6, and ourselves to be dead with him, verse 8. And really initially in regeneration, Romans 6, 3 and 5, when a principle contrary to it and destructive of it, Galatians 5, 17, is planted in our hearts. But the whole work is by degrees to be carried on towards perfection all our days. Uh, this more in the process of our discourse. The intendment of the apostle in this prescription of the duty mentioned is that the mortification of indwelling sin remaining on our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. Number five, the promise unto this duty is life. Ye shall live. The life promise is opposed to the death threatened in the clause foregoing. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, which the same apostle expresseth. Ye shall of the flesh reap corruption, Galatians 6, 8, or destruction from God. Now, perhaps the word may not only intend eternal life, but also the spiritual life in Christ, which here we have, not as to the essence and being of it, which is already enjoyed by believers, but as to the joy, comfort, and vigor of it. As the apostle says in another case, Now I live if ye stand fast.
First Thessalonians 3, verse 8. Now my life will do me good. I shall have joy and comfort with my life. Ye shall live, lead a good, vigorous, comfortable spiritual life whilst you are here and obtain eternal life hereafter. Supposing what was said before of the connection between mortification and eternal life as of means and end, I shall add only as a second motive to the duty prescribed that the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Chapter 2 Having laid this foundation, a brief confirmation of the aforementioned principle deductions will lead me to what I chiefly intend. Number one, that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. So the Apostle, Colossians 3, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Whom speaks he to? Such as were risen with Christ, verse 1. Such as were dead with him, verse 3. Such as whose life Christ was and who should appear with him in glory, verse 4. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ, virtually your being quickened with him, will not excuse you from this work. And our Savior tells us how His Father deals with every branch in Him that beareth fruit, every true and living branch. He purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. John 15, verse 2. He prunes it, that not for a day or two, but whilst it is a branch in this world. And the Apostle tells you what was his practice. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. I do it, saith he, daily. It is a work of my life. I omit it not. This is my business. And if this were the work and business of Paul, who was so incomparably exalted in grace, revelations, enjoyments, privileges, consolations, above the ordinary measure of believers, where may we possibly bottom an exemption from this work and duty whilst we are in this world? Some brief account of the reasons hereof may be given. Number one, indwelling sin always abides whilst we are in this world. Therefore, it is always to be mortified. The vain, foolish, and ignorant disputes of men about perfect keeping the commands of God, of perfection in this life, of being holy and perfectly dead to sin, I meddle not now with. It is more than probable that the men of those abominations never knew what belonged to the keeping of any one of God's commands and are so much below perfection of degrees that they never attain to a perfection of parts in obedience or universal obedience and sincerity. And therefore, many in our days who have talked of perfection have been wiser and have affirmed it to consist in knowing no difference between good and evil. Not that they are perfect in the things we call good, but that all is alike to them, and the height of wickedness is their perfection. Others who have found out a new way to it by denying original indwelling sin and attempering the spirituality of the law of God unto men's carnal hearts, as they have sufficiently discovered themselves to be ignorant of the life of Christ and the power of it in believers, so they have invented a new righteousness that the gospel knows not of, being vainly puffed up by their fleshly minds. For us, who dare not 
be wise above what is written, nor boast by other men's lines of what God hath not done for us, we say that indwelling sin lives in us in some measure and degree whilst we are in this world. We dare not speak as though we had already attained or were already perfect. Philippians 3 verse 12 Our inward man is to be renewed day by day. Whilst here we live, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 and according to the renovations of the new are the breaches and decays of the old. Whilst we are here, we know but in part, 1 Corinthians 13:12, having a remaining darkness to be gradually removed by our growth in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3, verse 18. And the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, so that we cannot do the things that we would. Galatians 5:17, and are therefore defective in our obedience as well as in our light. 1 John 1, verse 8. We have a body of death. Romans 7, verse 24. From whence we are not delivered, but by the death of our bodies. Philippians 3:21. Now, it being our duty to mortify, to be killing of sin whilst it is in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, doth but half his work. Galatians 6, 9. Hebrews 12, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Number 2. Sin doth not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But its sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all conditions, even where there is least suspicion. Sin does not only abide in us, but the law of the members is still rebelling against the law of the mind. Romans 7:23. And the spirit that dwells in us lusteth to envy. James 4, verse 5, It is always in continual work. The flesh lusteth against the spirit. Galatians 5, 17, Lust is still tempting and conceiving sin. James 1, 14, In every moral action it is always either inclining to evil or hindering from that which is good, or disframing the spirit from communion with God. It inclines to evil. The evil which I would not, that I do, says the Apostle, Romans 7, 19. Whence is that? Why? Because in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And it hinders from good. The good that I would, I do not. Verse 19. Upon the same account, either I do it not, or not as I should, all my holy things being defiled by this sin. The flesh lusteth against the spirit, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. Galatians 5:17, And it unframes our spirit, and this is called the sin that so easily besets us. Hebrews 12, verse 1, On which account are those grievous complaints that the apostle makes of it? Romans 7, So that sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing and tempting. Who can say that he had ever anything to do with God or for God, that indwelling sin had not a hand in the corrupting of what he did? And this trade will it drive more or less all our days. If then, sin will be always acting. If we be not always mortifying, we are lost creatures. He that stands still and suffers his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, 
watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, foolish, and proceeding to the ruin thereof, can we expect a comfortable event? There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so whilst we live in this world. I shall discharge him from this duty who can bring sin to a composition, to a cessation of arms in this warfare, if it will spare him any one day and any one duty, provided he be a person that is acquainted with the spirituality of obedience and the subtlety of sin, let him say to his soul as to this duty, Soul, take thy rest. The saints, whose souls breathe after deliverance from its perplexing rebellion, know there is no safety against it but in a constant warfare. Number three, sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if let alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. The Apostle tells us what the works and fruits of it are, Galatians 5, 19-21. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are idolatry, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. You know what it did in David and sundry others. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be idolatry if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Men may come to that, that sin may not be heard speaking a scandalous word in their hearts that is provoking to any great sin with scandal in its mouth, but yet every rise of lust might it have its course would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin by which it prevails to the hardening of man and so to their ruin. Hebrew 3.13 It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals, but having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presseth on to some farther degrees in the same kind. This new acting and pressing forward makes the soul take little notice of what an entrance to a falling off from God is already made. It thinks all is indifferent well if there be no farther progress, and so far as the soul is made insensible of any sin, that is, as to such a sense as the gospel requireth, so far it is hardened. But sin is still pressing forward, and that because it hath no bounds but utter relinquishment of God in opposition to him that it proceeds toward its height by degrees, making good the ground it hath got by hardness, is not from its nature, but its deceitfulness. 
Now nothing can prevent this but mortification that withers the root and strikes at the head of sin every hour so that whatever it aims at it is crossed in. There is not the best saint in the world but if he should give over this duty would fall into as many cursed sins as ever any did of his kind. Number four, this is one main reason why the Spirit and the new nature is given unto us, that we may have a principle within whereby to oppose sin and lust. The flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Well, and what then? Why the Spirit also lusteth against the flesh. Galatians 5:17. There is a propensity in the Spirit or spiritual new nature to be acting against the flesh as well as in the flesh to be acting against the Spirit. So, 2 Peter 1, 4 and 5. It is our participation of the divine nature that gives us an escape from the pollutions that are in the world through lust. Romans 7.23 There is a law of the mind as well as a law of the members. Now this is, first, the most unjust and unreasonable thing in the world when two combatants are engaged to bind one and keep him up from doing his utmost and to leave the other at liberty to wound him at his pleasure. And secondly, the foolishest thing in the world to bind him who fights for our eternal salvation, and to let him alone who seeks and violently attempts our everlasting ruin. The contest is for our lives and souls, not to be daily employing the spirit and new nature for the mortifying of sin, is to neglect that excellent succor which God has given us against our greatest enemy. If we neglect to make use of what we have received, God may justly hold His hand from giving us more. His graces as well as His gifts are bestowed on us to use, exercise, and trade with. Not to be daily mortifying sin, is to sin against the goodness, kindness, wisdom, grace, and love of God who have furnished us with a principle of doing it. Number five, negligence in this duty casts the soul into a perfect contrary condition to that which the apostle affirms was his. Second Corinthians 4, verse 16. Though our outward man perish, Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. In these the inward man perisheth, and the outward man is renewed day by day. Sin is as the house of David, and grace is the house of Saul. Exercise and success are the two main cherishers of grace in the heart. When it is suffered to lie still, it withers and decays. The things of it are ready to die, Revelation 3, verse 2. And sin gets ground towards the hardening of the heart, Hebrews 3, 13. This is that which I intend. By the omission of this duty, grace withers, lust flourisheth. And the frame of the heart grows worse and worse, and the Lord knows what desperate and fearful issues it hath had with many. 
where sin, through the neglect of mortification, gets a considerable victory, it breaks the bones of the soul. Psalm 31, 10, 51, 8, and makes a man weak, sick, and ready to die. Psalm 38, 3-5, so that he cannot look up. Psalm 40, verse 12, Isaiah 33, 24, and when poor creatures will take blow after blow, wound after wound, foil after foil, and never rouse up themselves to a vigorous opposition, can they expect anything but to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, and that their souls should bleed to death? Second John, verse 8, Indeed, it is a sad thing to consider the fearful issues of this neglect which lie under our eyes every day. See we not those whom we knew, humble, melting, broken-hearted Christians, tender and fearful to offend, zealous for God in all His ways, His Sabbaths and ordinances, grown through a neglect of watching unto this duty earthly, carnal, cold, wrathful, complying with the men of the world and things of the world to the scandal of religion and the fearful temptation of them that know them? The truth is what between placing mortification in a rigid, stubborn frame of spirit, which is for the most part earthly, legal, censorious, partial, consistent with wrath, envy, malice, pride on the one hand, and pretenses of liberty, grace, and I know not what on the other, true evangelical mortification is almost lost amongst us, of which afterward. Number six, it is our duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Second Corinthians 7, verse 1. To be growing in grace every day. First Peter 2, verse 2. 2 Peter 3, verse 18. To be renewing our inward man day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16 Now this cannot be done without the daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and against every degree we grow to. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lust. He who does not kill sin in his way takes no step towards his journey's end. He who finds no opposition from it, and who sets not himself in every particular to its mortification, is at peace with it, not dying to it. This, then, is the first general principle of our ensuing discourse. Notwithstanding the meritorious mortification, if I may so speak, of all and every sin in the cross of Christ, notwithstanding the real foundation of universal mortification laid in our first conversion by conviction of sin, humiliation for sin, and the implantation of a new principle opposite to it and destructive of it, yet sin doth so remain, so act and work in the best of believers whilst they live in this world that the constant daily mortification of it is all their days incumbent on them. 
before I proceed to the consideration of the next principle, I cannot but by the way complain of many professors of these days who, instead of bringing forth such great and evident fruits of mortification as are expected, scarce bear any leaves of it. There is indeed a broad light fallen upon the men of this generation, and together therewith many spiritual gifts communicated, which, with some other considerations, have wonderfully enlarged the bounds of professors and profession, both they and it are exceedingly multiplied and increased. Hence there is a noise of religion and religious duties in every corner, preaching in abundance, and that not in an empty, light, trivial, and vain manner as formerly, but to a good proportion of a spiritual gift, so that if you will measure the number of believers by light, gifts, and profession, the church may have cause to say, Who hath borne me all these? But now if you will take the measure of them by this great discriminating grace of Christians, perhaps you will find their number not so multiplied. Where almost is that professor who owes his conversion to these days of light, and so talks and professes at such a rate of spirituality as few in former days were in any measure acquainted with. I will not judge them, but perhaps boasting what the Lord has done in them, that doth not give evidence of a miserably unmortified heart, a vain spending of time, idleness, unprofitableness in men's places, envy, strife, variance, emulations, wrath, pride, worldliness, selfishness, be badges of Christians, we have them on us and amongst us in abundance. And if it be so with them who have much light, and which we hope is saving, what shall we say of some who would be accounted religious and yet despise gospel light and for the duty we have in hand know no more of it but what consists in men's denying themselves sometimes in outward enjoyments, which is one of the outmost branches of it, which yet they will seldom practice. The good Lord send out a spirit of mortification to cure our distempers, or we are in a sad condition. There are two evils which certainly attend every unmortified professor the first in himself, the other in respect of other. Number one, in himself. Let him pretend what he will. He hath slight thoughts of sin, at least of sins of daily infirmity. The root of an unmortified course is the digestion of sin without bitterness in the heart. When a man hath confirmed his imagination to such an apprehension of grace and mercy as to be able, without bitterness, to swallow and digest daily sins, that man is at the very brink of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Neither is there a greater evidence of a false and rotten heart in the world than to drive such a trade. To use the blood of Christ, which is given to cleanse us, 1 John 1, 7, Titus 2, 14. The exaltation of Christ, which is to give us repentance, Acts 5, 31. The doctrine of grace, which teaches us to deny all ungodliness, Titus 2, 11 and 12. To countenance sin is a rebellion that in the issue will break the bones. 
at this door have gone out from us most of the professors that have apostatized in the days wherein we live. For a while they were most of them under convictions. These kept them unto duties and brought them to profession, so they escaped the pollutions that are in the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2, verse 20, But having got an acquaintance with the doctrine of the gospel, and being weary of duty for which they had no principle, they began to countenance themselves in manifold neglects from the doctrine of grace. Now, when once this evil had laid hold of them, they speedily tumbled into perdition. Number two, to others. It hath an evil influence on them on a twofold account. Number one, it hardens them by begetting in them a persuasion that they are in as good a condition as the best professors. Whatever they see in them is sustained for want of this mortification that it is of no value with them. They have a zeal for religion, but it is accompanied with want of forbearance and universal righteousness. They deny prodigality, but with worldliness. They separate from the world, but live wholly to themselves, taking no care to exercise loving kindness in the earth. Or they talk spiritually and live vainly, mention communion with God, and are every way conformed to the world boasting of forgiveness of sin and never forgiving others. And with such considerations do poor creatures harden their hearts in their unregeneracy. Number two, they deceive them in making them believe that if they can come up to their condition, it shall be well with them. And so it grows an easy thing to have the great temptation of repute in religion to wrestle with all, when they may go far beyond them as to what appears in them, yet come short of eternal life. But of these things and all the evils of unmortified walking afterward. Chapter 3 The next principle relates to the great sovereign cause of the mortification treated of, which in the words laid for the foundation of this discourse is said to be the Spirit, that is the Holy Ghost, as was evinced ahead too. He only is sufficient for this work, all ways and means without him are as a thing of naught, and he is the great efficient of it. He works in us as he pleases. Number one, in vain do men seek other remedies. They shall not be healed by them. What several ways have been prescribed for this to have sin mortified is known. The greatest part of popish religion, of that which looks most like religion in their profession, consists in mistaken ways and means of mortification. This is the pretense of their rough garments whereby they deceive. Their vows, orders, fasting, penances are all built on this ground. They are all for the mortifying of sin. Their preaching, sermons, and books of devotion, they look all this way. Hence, those who interpret the locusts that came out of the bottomless pit, Revelations 9.3, to be the friars of the Romish church, who are said to torment men, so that they should seek death and not find it, verse 6, think that they did it by their stinging sermons whereby they convinced them of sin, but being not able to discover the remedy for the healing and mortifying of it, they kept them in such perpetual anguish and terror and such trouble in their consciences that they desired to die. 
This, I say, is the substance and glory of their religion, but what with their laboring to mortify dead creatures ignorant of the nature and end of the work, what with the poison they mix with it in their persuasion of its merit, yea, supererogation, as they style their unnecessary merit with a proud, barbarous style, their glory is their shame, but of them and their mortification more afterwards in chapter 7 that the ways and means to be used for the mortification of sin invented by them are still insisted on and prescribed for the same end by some who should have more light and knowledge of the gospel is known. Such directions to this purpose have of late been given by some and are greedily cashed at by others professing themselves Protestants as might have become popish devotionists three or four hundred years ago. Such outside endeavors, such bodily exercises, such self-performances, such merely legal duties without the least mention of Christ or His Spirit are varnished over with swelling words of vanity. For the only means and expedients for the mortification of sin as discover a deep-rooted unacquaintedness with the power of God and mystery of the gospel. The consideration hereof was one motive to the publishing of this plain discourse. Now, the reasons why the Papists can never, with all their endeavors, truly mortify any one sin amongst others are, number one, because many of the ways and means they use and insist upon for this sin were never appointed of God for that purpose. Now, there is nothing in religion that hath any efficacy for composing an end, but it hath it from God's appointment of it to that purpose. Such as these are their rough garments, their vows, penances, disciplines, their course of monastical life, and the like, concerning all which God will say, Who hath required these things at your hand? And in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the traditions of men. Of the same nature are sundry self-vexations insisted on by others. Number two, because those things that are appointed of God as means are not used by them in their due place and order, such as are praying, fasting, watching, meditation, and the like. These have their use in the business in hand, but whereas they are all to be looked on as streams, they look on them as the fountain whereas they affect and accomplish the end as means only, subordinate to the Spirit and faith, they look on them to do it by virtue of the work wrought. If they fast so much and pray so much and keep their hours and times, the work is done. As the Apostle says of some in another case, they are always learning, never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So they are always mortifying, but never come to any sound mortification. In a word, they have sundry means to mortify the natural man. As to the natural life here we lead, none to mortify lust or corruption. This is the general mistake of men ignorant of the gospel about this thing. And it lies at the bottom of very much of that superstition and will worship that has been brought into the world. What horrible self-macerations were practiced by some of the ancient authors of monastical devotion? What violence did they offer to nature? What extremity of sufferings did they put themselves upon? 
search their ways and principles to the bottom, and you will find that it had no other root but this mistake, namely that attempting rigid mortification, they fell upon the natural man instead of the corrupt old man, upon the body wherein we live instead of the body of death. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.